Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome to the Politics Guys with your hosts, Dave Carson and Michael Darnowski. Welcome to the Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My co-host this week, as always, is Cleveland area attorney and sometime Republican strategist Jay Carson. On Tuesday, Americans elected Donald Trump, a billionaire real estate developer and reality TV star with no previous experience in elective office to be their next president, choosing him over Hillary Clinton, a former first lady, United States senator and secretary of state. Now, the pre-election polls had Clinton as a huge favorite, and our predictions were very much in line with those polls. Donald Trump's win is the biggest shock to presidential election forecasters since uh, 1948, I'd say, nearly 70 years ago, when Harry Truman defeated Thomas Dewey, and it's left the political establishment utterly stunned. Now, on today's show, we're going to focus on four things. How the polls got it so wrong, why Donald Trump won or why Hillary Clinton lost, what happened in down-ballot elections, and finally, where the parties go from here. Now, there's a fifth question of what we can potentially expect from a Donald Trump presidency. That's kind of a show in and of itself, and it's going to be the topic of a special Ask the Politics Guys, which will be out on Wednesday. So, to get started, first off, uh, what happened? What happened with the polls? Well, we got it wrong, didn't we? We got it really (laughs) wrong. Now, just to recap, we, Just, we suck at this. Well, well, everyone suck. Almost everyone. Just before the election, the major poll aggregators and forecasts said the probability of a Clinton win extremely high. Even the polling model that gave Trump the greatest chance to win, which was Nate Silver's 538.com prediction, had Clinton as a two-to-one favorite. And, and most of the polling aggregators thought a Clinton win was a 90% or higher probability. Uh, the national poll average had Clinton winning by 3.2% in the popular vote. Now, Hillary Clinton did, in fact, win the popular vote. Uh, Right now, it's only uh, half a percent, though that percentage looks like it's going to rise somewhat to maybe as much as 1.5% by some estimates when every vote's counted. Um, But even so, it's a major blown prediction. So, Jay, what do you think happened here? Um, You know, a... a Gosh, you're you're probably the better person to answer this than I am, uh, because you have you do more numbers and and more uh, uh, polling modeling and and so forth. Um, to me, I, I but but again, I, I'm I've talked to people who who do this for a living, uh, people in Ohio who are usually very much in the know, whose predictions, uh, you know, like mine, we're seeing Hillary winning Ohio by you know five to eight points. Uh, I think there is something of the uh, what we talked about, the Bradley effect or the Shia Tory effect. We had a question about that a couple weeks ago. Uh, I said I think there it, it's out there and it's a factor, but it would not be that big of a factor. Um, and I was wrong on that. Uh, I think the other piece of it is sort of what happened with Brexit. There, there was the uh, sort of inconceivability bias that – no, this this just isn't going to happen because it can't happen. I, I I can't imagine it happening, and and therefore it can't. Um, so there was some of that I think built into the polls. Now, as as far as you know, what what pollsters did wrong in terms of weighting, I think there's there's some issues there. Of they did not anticipate uh, the 
the turnout in rural areas that they got. Uh, and therefore, uh, and you can explain how this works, that when people do polls, it's not just simply you call a couple hundred people and then you say, okay, uh, you know, 55% of them liked Hillary. Uh, it's it's a, you, you, you take the demographics and you compare that to voter turnout, uh, likelihood of voter turnout, and you assign weights to those folks. And I think the uh, some were, were overweighted and they underweighted uh, this this uh, turnout in rural areas. Yeah, exactly. And I was going to hit on, on those two points. And I think that there seems to be a, uh, an emerging consensus about that is that that non-response bias, as pollsters would call, or that shy Trump voter thing, or, you know, just the fact that uh, some a lot of Trump voters just might not have not so much been shy or, or embarrassed, but just that they don't believe in, you know, talking to, they to just don't pollsters. Answer the yeah, for, you know, yeah. and so I think that's part of it. Certainly, and and you're right, underestimating the intensity of Trump's support and overestimating Clinton's support, I think. But now it's important to point out that these are sort of semi-instant opinions, and it's going to take a while to get a real solid analysis of this. And by a while, I mean weeks or maybe even months. There's a lot of numbers to crunch, a lot of data. So all of this is very preliminary, but those certainly seem to be the two big factors. Now, one thing I should point out is that while all the polls got it wrong, or pretty much all the polls, there's one group who actually didn't get it wrong, and that's my people, the political scientists. Believe it or not, um, I uh, took a look at an average— well, you still got it wrong. Well, yeah, I got it wrong. And, and so <laughs> uh, what, what happened with me is I think I, be, I, be, I got sucked into the, to the media narrative, and I forgot to put on my political scientist hat, and there you go. But— let me let me talk about the political science models. Now, political scientists for years have been modeling presidential elections, and mostly these models are based on what are now not on not polls, but what are called fundamentals. Things like the state of the the state of the economy, or how long the incumbent party has been in office, and and that sort of thing. And so, uh, I took a look at nine of these models, and the average of these nine models predicted Clinton with a. popular vote win, which is going to be pretty close to what she actually got, in fact. So a lot better than the, uh, uh, than the polls did. And, you know, I think what happened, in fact, Vox uh, talked about this, Ezra Klein and company said, you know, they looked at these models too, and they said pretty much the same thing. In fact, the models they looked at said that actually Trump would win, and they just decided that that was not believable, and they sort of discounted these models and talked more about the polls. And that to me is, you know, I, I think a lot of people, almost everyone got sucked into that. And what political scientists have been saying for years and years is that campaigns don't matter nearly as much as people think they do. Uh, And, you know, I know that, but I got sucked into this, well, this campaign is different because Donald Trump is so different and Hillary Clinton is so different. But the basic fundamentals suggested this was going to be a nail biter. And a number of these fundamental models actually said, well, Donald Trump is you know, going to come away winning. And it turns out that the fundamentals were you know, pretty much right on this and the polls weren't right on this. So there well, you go. And, and a guy who did, in fact, get this right um, is uh, cartoonist Dilbert creator Scott Adams, uh, who sort of was going along those those same same lines. Again, the guy's not a, a pollster. Well, yeah, but was but was looking at more the 
uh, just the, the general right track, wrong track feel of, of the country uh, was looking at things like like you said about which parties held office for how long. Uh, and if and if you look at it in that way, it, it, it is it's it's very it's uncommon for a the same party to win uh, the presidency three times in a row. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he was looking at, at those pieces and not at polls and, he, you know, he, he made the right call. Well, I think, I think Adams was looking more at his, he runs everything through what he calls his master persuader lens or something like that. So I don't think he was actually looking so much as fundamentals as he was just really impressed with Donald Trump's, uh, ability to, you know, raise up the, 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 you know, the millions of Americans to kind of engage them and so forth. But, the point being, I think the larger point being is that, you know, we we rely too strongly on the polls. And normally what happens with polls is when you get a lot of them, their errors cancel out. But when everyone is making essentially the same error or a similar error, which it seems like this may have been the case, well, then it's not going to happen. And uh, right. and there you go. So, uh, all right. I think that more or less covers why the polls got around. And we'll have more on this as we see more, you know, uh, more data coming in, more analysis and so forth over the next uh, weeks and months, uh, without a doubt, you know. But uh, yeah, but pretty yeah, close. I, I would say I mean there's there's a whole lot more to talk about oh, yeah. about the, the polls and how it happens. But but you're right, we need more data uh, to make a, a really educated discussion of it. Yeah, and and, and we'll have that because Definitely. this is to me this is fascinating, and I think it's going to be something that really might change the way we do polling uh, going forward. Yeah, and that, that's certainly possible. I mean, I'm not ready to go quite that far but definitely i think people are pollsters are you know have a lot of egg on their face and they're going to have to take a hard look and make some adjustments certainly all right now before we move on to why donald trump won we'd like to thank our new supporters this week first we have ken from cincinnati uh, a gentleman and a scholar who made a generous donation to help keep the show going Uh, ken says he's enjoyed listening to our election coverage and he's glad we're doing it oh thank you ken yeah thanks ken Fine, uh, next, finally, next we have Dusty from uh, Adele, Iowa, another very generous contributor. And Dusty writes, now more than ever, we need the clear <laughs> and rational discussions you guys deliver. I'm looking forward to this week's episode. All right. Well, I hope, hope we deliver. Yes, yes absolutely. You, and now if you're interested in supporting the show financially, you can do what Ken and Dusty did. Go to politicsguys.com and click on either the PayPal or Patreon donation links we've got up there. We would certainly really appreciate it. All right. Moving on to why Donald Trump won or, like I said, why did Hillary Clinton lose? Maybe the best way to look at it is why did the race turn out the way it did, which gets at both what Trump did right and what Clinton did wrong. And if it's okay with you, Jay, I'll kind of start with my main observations here. And I think I have four main observations about, oh, yeah, you know, I have a lot of observations. Yeah. But you're a professor. Well, there you go. Yeah, exactly. Um, So first off, the exit polling pretty clearly indicates that Trump racked up massive wins among non-college educated whites, even bigger than the pollsters predicted. And while Clinton won the votes of more minorities, millennials, and people living in big cities, she didn't do nearly as well as President Obama did in 2008 and 2012. And so her wins with those groups weren't big enough to offset her losses with older and white voters. So that's the first thing. And I think kind of uh, well related, it seems pretty clear to me that Clinton overreached. 
you know, she spent too much time in stretch states that she didn't really need to win, like Florida, mm-hmm. like Ohio, and didn't ensure that her so-called firewall states, uh, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, were absolutely rock solid, which it turns right. out that they weren't. So, well, and she may well have been relying on her polls, which are just as incorrect as as you know what the media was putting out. Yeah, and and in some of these states, of course, there weren't nearly there wasn't a whole lot of polling that was done. In fact, I heard a report just recently that a couple of days before the election, a super PAC affiliated with the Clinton campaign did a poll in Michigan or it was Wisconsin, it might have been one of the two, and said and found out that uh, the, there was like within one point, everyone freaked out. Went to Michigan. It was Michigan, and but of course it was a little bit too little, too late. So anyway, mm-hmm. second, I'd argue that we knew from the primaries that this would be a change election. You know, where voters rise up, demand something different. Right. Uh, Bernie Sanders was a great example of that on the left, but yeah, but Donald Trump obviously even a better example. Now Hillary Clinton, I think, was the most establishment least convincing change candidate the Democratic Party could have nominated. I, I can't think of anyone, any prominent Democrat who is more identified with the way things are. And, yeah. you know, contrast her with Donald Trump, who was, I would argue, the least establishment, most convincing, most convincing change candidate the Republicans could have nominated. And also, OK, Clinton pushed some new ideas in the campaign. But to me, and I think to a lot of voters, they never felt authentic. They never felt honest. It felt like, well, Bernie Sanders was talking about a lot of this stuff, and okay, I'll kind of graft this on to my campaign. But she never felt like a change candidate to anyone, I don't think. And so I think that was a huge factor. What do you think, Jay? I No, I absolutely agree with that. I mean, it's it's really – it's hard for Hillary Clinton to say and, – and Trump did a, a good job in some of the late commercials that I saw about that Hillary has been a Washington insider for the past 25, uh, 30 yeah. years. And uh, you know, you, it's, it, if you're upset about the way things have been going for the past 25, 30, 30 years, I mean, and let's look back to the signing of NAFTA. Uh, which which became an issue in, in this in this campaign. Uh, absolutely, she's she's been part of it. Uh, uh, she's been part of the uh, you know the precursor to Obamacare, which which again has has played a role. Um, so and and also to the scandalous and I, and I don't want to just you know blame her on this, but uh, look, a lot of the of a lot of our political discussions of the past twenty five years, at least have been about Clintons and and their propensity to kind of get themselves into trouble. Uh, she's been at the center of all of that. And, and yeah, and she couldn't distance herself from Obama after she's Obama's secretary of state. She couldn't really distance herself from the Obama foreign policy when she was the author of a lot of it. And the, right, the, the switching to adopting sort of some Bernie Stan, Sanders type positions uh, was not authentic and, and authenticity seemed to be very much a problem where authenticity is uh, Trump's Trump strength, like him or hate him. He, he is what he is. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, that thing, I totally agree about Trump hitting on that. You know, she's been in politics for 30 years and so forth. And, you know, some of my some of my friends say, well, that's unfair because she was only one person and she was a senator. And what do you expect one senator to do? But that misses the point. Of course, this isn't an argument about. Well, it, it's also it misses the point that 
in large part, the Clintons really ran the Democratic Party or, yeah. or were a major, major part of the Democratic Party for the last 25 years. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so the point that, yes, it's true that one senator can't change policy on her own uh, and the secretary of state can only do so much, but it's that identification with the way things are. Um, all right. So third, it's incredibly hard for the incumbent party to win a third presidential term. Now, George H.W. Bush, the good Bush, did it after eight years of Reagan. But that was a time when economic growth was nearly 4%, and that's an inflation-adjusted terms. Uh, Compare right. that to today, just over 1% so far this year. And before Bush, you have to go all the way back to Franklin Roosevelt and Harry Truman, who were presidents yeah. in a very different political world. So it's a, it's a tough thing to pull off even under good conditions, uh, even with a good candidate, right? So right. that's that's my third observation, and we talked about that uh, a little bit before, so I, I know you agree with that as well, right? Yep, yeah. yep. Okay, and finally, I think Donald Trump hit on a fundamental truth, uh, one that resonated, I think, with millions of Americans, and that's for the last 30 years, things have been a disaster. I mean, not for the country as a whole, A maybe. total disaster. Yeah, yeah, there you go. You know, so but, he would say, so he would say. So, I mean, you can look at averages, <laughs> right, and, and things look a little different, but when you look at those in the middle class and lower, especially without a college education, it has been pretty awful. You look at median income as actually by, depending on how you measure it, actually down. I mean, people's lives are not only not getting better, they're actually getting worse. And these folks are looking to the future and saying, well, I don't some, see any some people. Well, some well, yeah. And I think that's that's part of the problem is is they look and they see. There are a great many people who have who have prospered significantly yeah. over the last twenty five years. The top ten percent, uh, mostly. And yeah, that's, you, you and I. I mean, yeah. look, you and I would be an example of that. Uh, well, we both came from more or less working class families, mm -hmm. uh, and and have, have look have risen to the heights of podcasting. Um, uh, but no, have have, have achieved sure. sort of uh, become professionals in a, a, a profession. We're we're not uh, the working class anymore. And uh, uh, so for some people, they, they look and they see, geez, the economy has done really well for some and, and less so for others. And I yeah. think that's almost the bigger problem. If it's sort of a, a shared misery, uh, you don't have this, this sort of same force driving it. But, but uh, it's not an across-the-board uh, improvement or, or uh, decline. Yeah. It's, it's segmented. Absolutely. So, I mean, income inequality, uh, a, a decrease in economic mobility, these are huge issues and everyone's known they've been huge, huge issues, but I don't think anyone expected them to play out or most people didn't expect them to play out the way they did in this election. And so that's, uh, I think that's a big deal. So that's my analysis. Um, that's your, your four. Okay. My four point analysis. So uh, what do you think? Um, I, I don't know. I, have, I don't have these, these numbered. Um, <laughs> I think a big piece of it was the Supreme Court. Okay. And Trump did really well with evangelicals, which seems counterintuitive. Uh, it would seem counterintuitive to me. It seemed counterintuitive to me back in uh, uh, March or April on, on Super Tuesday when he won the South by such large evangelical numbers. And, and again, that was sort of the, the first time you and I and a lot of the, the country stepped back and said, whoa, this Trump is for real. There's something else going on here. Um, and and I think that's that's significant. Uh, and and 
the explanation that I read, uh, this is from James Toronto in the Wall Street Journal, who is, again, one of my personal heroes, um, was that if you think about it, it does make make sense. So you you ask how can an evangelical uh, support Donald Trump when he does and says the things that that he does? Um, but his his parallel was look at the feminist support for Bill Clinton. Sure. Yeah. And and it is one of those those things that that people can sort of have a a separation in their mind of uh, the message and the messenger. Mm-hmm. And evangelicals felt that uh, on their issues. Which is, I mean, I think I'd, I'd frame it as sort of cultural control of the Supreme Court, uh, religious liberty, uh, and there's a real feeling among evangelicals that religious liberty is is threatened. Um, he was the best person on their issue, uh, or at least they knew that Hillary Clinton would would uh, would would not be helpful, and 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 Trump Trump would, and that the the battlefield, because there are so many, you know, the first opening is such a big one, uh, the Scalia vacancy, but there's so, so much likelihood that there will be others. Um, that was, that was what they voted on despite his, his personal characteristics and behavior. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's something we talked about in last week's Ask the Politics guys. And we were assuming like so many people were a Clinton win, but still what, what we talked about in terms of the likelihood of, uh, judicial appointments for whoever, one, you know, it still holds true. And certainly Donald Trump is going to have the opportunity to remake uh, uh, a substantial portion, I would say, you know, 20, 25 percent of the federal judiciary. And uh, he's going to get uh, certainly one and possibly two, maybe even three uh, Supreme Court nominations uh, in, in his uh, in his term. So that's yeah. that's a big so, deal. So one, one of my second factors, and again, this is difficult to quantify, um, was the the Trump appeal the Trump as the anti politically correct candidate? Um, there was a piece I, I posted uh, on uh, the website from National Review, and, and there's been tons of this stuff out there about sort of the reactions on college campuses. And you can probably speak to that how how Northern Kentucky is is handling um, you know what I think the people will will come to be, will call Black Tuesday or something in in the in the future. Um, but but the idea of the you know millennials crying in the streets uh, is why Trump won. Uh, it's part of it. it. It is there are a lot of folks out there, uh, and again, let's look at at people the working. Uh, I don't want to say the working poor, but the the work, working class people who are out there who have tough jobs, who have tough bosses, who live in a rough and tumble world, uh, and and view this and say. My gosh, you get these, you know, elitist rich kids crying because their candidate didn't win. Now, I know you can say, look, there's a lot different because it's not just their candidate didn't win. This is Trump. This is something different. Um, but I think throughout the election, there was that feeling of, look, you may not like it, but this guy tells it like it is. This guy speaks sort of to what my experience is. Um, and uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree. That that's definitely part of it, though. I, I also feel that the media tends to uh, 
blow that out of proportion, like the, the, the article about the reactions on college campuses. I think when a lot of people think about colleges, they naturally think about these elite colleges with rich kids and so forth. And most colleges and in, in, in universities in the country aren't like that at all. They're places like the place I True. teach in northern Kentucky where we have kids who are, are not – they're not elite. They're not rich kids. They're, they're, they're working class folks for the most part, first-generation college kids. And they're not out there protesting with not my president scrawled on their forehead or something like that. You know, they're just getting on with their lives. But the thing is, is it, there's this misrepresentation. And, and I think but, it's... Be- but, but that isn't a... You are, are situated in sort of a, a solidly red portion of the country. Sure. But, but I think that, you know, most colleges are like that. But again, it's the bias of the media, which is mostly a, a coastal, a liberal, elite type of thing. And so they focus on that, both sides, both the Republican and the, the, the Democratic mainstream media. And I just think it's, you know, it's, it's a mischaracterization. But the larger point is that you're right, is that that's what people see. And that sort of uh, political correctness is something that I, I think you're right. A lot of Trump uh, voters. Well, and it goes, it goes, I mean, that was just sort of and that's sort of an after the fact example. Sure. Um, obviously, that people didn't make that decision. But, but but the you know, based on on reactions on college campuses. But but the sense that um, you you know, you can't say what you you want to say you the sense that things that used to be. Uh, I don't want to say unquestioned or common sense, but uh, f- for for the guy who um, uh, you know in in uh, March of last year uh, saw nothing wrong with having a men's room and a women's room, uh, and then in April was was sort of told by the national media that that he's a horrible bigot. Um, it's that sort of the maybe, cultural, yeah, you know, maybe even more than that. Probably, and this is Trump as a guy who's like, come on, man, this common sense type stuff. So, well, maybe even more than that, uh, the issues with police shootings and the the sense I think that a lot of Trump voters had is that all of a sudden now police are being kind of roundly dismissed as a bunch of yeah. you know racist with guns essentially, and you know Trump focused on that law and order kind of thing. And, yeah. you know, a lot of people on the left said, you know, no, that this is this is a huge problem. And I agree with those people, but it's a matter of how that appeared. And all of a sudden, you know, that this is a group of people whose economic prospects are not looking so good, certainly. And, and now culturally, it seems like, you know, the party that used to be the big defender of the white working class, the, Dem- the Democratic Party, now, you know, it's sort of put a lot of stake in maintaining its minority coalition through a lot of focus on what people call identity politics. And that's something that so does not resonate, I think, with a huge block of voters who ended up saying, you know, no, we're going to go for Trump. No, and a lot of people who are quite honestly tired of being called racists. Yeah. Yeah. Or deplorable. And I think that – so, you know, I think another another, – Related piece is uh, that there are a lot of folks out there who take have a, a, the traditionalist view of the world. And we talked about this back when Trump got some of that evangelical vote back in in uh, the primaries. That it's not so much religious; it's traditionalist. It's this is the way you you run your life. You follow the rules. You play by the rules. And there's a large segment of people out there who feel like they played by the rules and they've gotten screwed. Uh, so it's it's a combination of the economic factors that things aren't going so great. And then they look at people uh, who do not play the, by the rules, for example, Hillary Clinton, uh, and, and see that that ascendancy there 
and the media's willingness to sort of excuse that where they know that it, had they had done something like that at their job, not that their job necessarily entails handling classified information or what sure. have you. Uh, but the idea that, look, I have to play by the rules that I have to play by. Why doesn't anybody else? I think that was a factor. And, and something else that's, that's weird, and this is something we'll have to wait and see as the polls shake out. But Trump got more minority support than Mitt Romney. Mm-hmm. And and again, that's that's something that, that you totally we, wouldn't expect. No. We need to figure out because that's that doesn't seem to make sense uh, by by everything we would have heard. Again, Mitt, Mitt Romney, the uh, probably the nicest man to ever run for president, <laughs> um, uh, and and Trump uh, probably one of the nastiest. Um, and, and, and particularly in terms of he was being hit constantly. He's a racist, homophobe, uh, uh, misogynist, and so forth. Um, now, again, he, he certainly didn't win women. But but um, blacks and Hispanics, he did better than Mitt Romney. Well, you know, I think I think that's an interesting point because, I, you know, the assumption, I think, sometimes is that race issues are going to overpower class issues or economic issues. And I think the Democratic Party has sort of made an assumption uh, along those lines, maybe, maybe not that stark, but, you know, maybe part of the issue is, or the reason is that these, these sort of, uh, the motivation for change and these sort of class-based uh, connections and issues are actually a little bit a little bit stronger than we expected, or at least that the, most of the I would expect. I would give a big amen to that because I am always preaching that, Class is the much bigger issue than than race or anything else. Yeah, and 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 certainly, I think that the Democrats have focused a lot more on race, a lot more on issues of diversity and things like that. And and it's uh, you know I think it's, it's fair to say that it's alienated, for better or worse, uh, you know, a large portion of the electorate. And we've we've seen. Well, that and if there. you look at who who is is hurt most by those policies, it is that that working class. Yeah. Um, if it's, you know, and again, you're talking affirmative action stuff and, and so forth. Uh, and again, whether the perception meets the reality, that's a good point. Um, yeah. Cause I would the argue working, the working class is going to look at if the people who are on the bubble of getting into school, uh, are not the rich kids from a, a really well to do high school or a private school or, or something like that. Uh, the people who are on the bubble bubble are the, the kids coming from the poor rural communities, uh, who don't get in, and then, well, someone else does get in, but they're from the inner city, and it's an affirmative action issue. And, you know, again, I'm setting aside, we're not, I'm not going to get into affirmative action discussion today, but but that's a perception, I think, that is out there. Uh, and it's not a racist perception. I, I think it's it's just a it's just a real perception, and that that's part of this. I think we should point out that while Hillary Clinton did lose, obviously, she won the popular vote, as Democrats have done in six of the last seven presidential elections, including 2000, when Al Gore won the popular vote but lost the electoral vote to George W. Bush. And, you know, this has led to some Democrats calling once again for doing away with the Electoral College and going to a national popular vote. What do you think about that, Jay? I think that's horrible. Okay, um, how come? As you might expect. Well, and, and again, it, it's a little like saying I'm I'm not I'm, I'm making up the number here, but the you know the Indians may well have had more men on base than the Cubs, um, and so really they should have won the World Series. Uh, but I, no, I mean this is this this happens perennially of of um, 
well, let's get rid of the Electoral College. But it's there for a reason. And the, the founders created a democratic republic. They didn't create a, a pure democracy. And the other piece that so often is is forgotten or, or people try to erase from our history is that the states aren't administrative entities of the federal government. The states are their own sovereign uh, uh, bodies who voluntarily entered into a, a federal constitution uh, to create the federal government. Uh, the, the federal government essentially receives its power through the consent of the states rather than, than vice versa. Um, so, no, the reason for the, the electoral college is to protect smaller states and to see that there is a diversity of voices uh, in the country and you're not overwhelmed by big states. And, and you know, now it's it's the coastal uh, New York's uh, and, and California's and to some extent Texas. Uh, back then it was it was talking about uh, Virginia versus a, say, Vermont or, or Connecticut. Um, but uh, I, I believe we it's it's part of the, the rules and uh, uh, we ought to we ought to keep it that way. Well, I will agree and disagree with you. Okay. I, I will agree that when uh, when the framers uh, uh, set the system up that. You know, we were seen, the United States was seen as just that, a collection of individual states who came together occasionally to do certain things, but the the, the primary unit was the state and not the individual citizen of the United States. You were a citizen of your state before you were a citizen of the United States. You know, people in exactly, fact. Exactly, yes. But, but that's changed. That's no longer, I think, how the vast majority of us see ourselves. And so what I think we're working under a structure that uh, was, was founded under certain assumptions. Those assumptions, those beliefs have changed. And so I think it's time to update that structure. Now, we could do a couple ways that could be done. That could be done through amending the Constitution. That's not going to happen. But there's also a way to do it. And in fact, the number of, uh, a number of folks have been pushing this for this national popular vote initiative, which would work where states would agree to, through state law, award all of their electors to the winner of the national popular vote. And that's that's gotten a bit of momentum, though I don't think it's actually going to happen. And that's the kind of change you could make through state laws and not having to change the Constitution. And I think I like the idea because, you know, I think it's frustrating. Like, let's say you're a Democrat in Kentucky, for instance, which is one of the most reliably red of red states at the presidential level, your presidential vote is, is essentially essentially meaningless. And and I think that should I think that should change. I would love to see it change, but I don't think it's going to change. Well, I would I would say if you move away from a constitu or the uh, uh, electoral college system, if you consider that uh, all right, so maybe you're a a uh, voter period in Idaho. Uh, your vote isn't going to count. Uh, sure it will. And, and I think to, to me that's – But it will. It will count just as much as the vote in California. It will count for one vote. But right now it, it, it doesn't count. So certainly the the Electoral College gives certain advantages to smaller states, gives certain advantages to Republicans. But at the – so it gives advantages well, to gives, states it, I mean, at I the expense of voters. It's only advantages to smaller states. Can consider that uh, – uh, certain swing states, uh, you know, that that re reflect better the sort of demographics of the country. Now, again, it, it was always Ohio in the past. In this in this uh, election, it was more North Carolina. Um, but that's that's important too because 
if you're looking for a president who will appeal to the broader sense of the country, you want them to have to campaign in those those swing states. If you didn't have an electoral college, uh, a, a president could very well be sort of the, the president of New York and California and the U.S. Uh, and that's that's my argument for sure. for keeping it. Well, uh, yeah, we we clearly have a fundamental disagreement on it. I, I feel that it's you know one person, one vote. They should all count for the same. But but anyway, I think well, the let, fact I, of the matter. I'll throw in the final one. Would would Democrats be making this argument had the result been different? Uh, I don't know. I can't speak for Democrats as a whole, but this Democrat would be making that argument. There certainly okay. would be some. I, I respect you would. Yeah, but. But but in any case, it's not. I don't think it's going to happen. I think if it would have happened, it would have happened after 2000, and, and certainly there'll be a, a little bit more of a push. But the, because this is going to would have to happen at the state level, and most state legislatures are controlled by Republicans, there's certainly no way that that's going to happen in enough states for it to be a reality. So we are, for yeah, better remember, or worse, remember the calls for the change in the the elimination of the electoral college uh, after Obama won. Well, yeah, well, you know, certainly there are a lot, and you're right, but that's a little different because you take a look at the winner of the popular vote versus the winner of the uh, electoral vote. And so that's really the only point where that comes into play, where people feel there's a fundamental lack of fairness, where the person that more Americans voted for does not become the president. And that's something that's burned the Democrats twice uh, in recent history and hasn't touched the Republicans at all. But anyway, you know, let's shift away from the presidential election just a little bit. And take a look at what happened in the other elections that were held on Tuesday, okay? Yes. So in the House of Representatives, the Democrats picked up six seats, but the Republicans will still have a sizable majority. It'll be 241 to 197. Uh, That's probably the one thing we got right. Well, yeah, yeah, we were right on that. Now, on the Senate side, the Democrats had 46 seats coming into the elections. They fell just short of a majority. They gained three seats leaving the Republicans in charge with a razor-thin 51-49 margin. So, Jay, what are your thoughts on the congressional elections? Well, I also, I, I just just for those who are keeping score, I did call the Senate uh, election correctly, although not the right people. Right. Uh, Iowa said that uh, Kelly Ayotte would win, uh, but it would be 51. But but regardless, I, I, that's, I'm job, looking Jay. for something to hang my yes. hat on. Um. No, I look. I think it's it's going to be a, a fascinating uh, ride for for Trump because it, he's got those that narrow majority in the Senate, uh, which in many cases isn't, isn't a majority at all. Uh, so he's going to have to necessarily hold Republicans together, and he's going to have to be able to peel off some Democrats if he's going to get something done, um, which is going to be an interesting dynamic to think. I mean, his his. Persona, his his uh, his uh, you know shtick was pretty much, hey, I'm a guy who makes deals. I can I can deal with anybody. So I think that's going to be interesting to see what kind of deals he can make. Definitely, I I absolutely agree with that. So we'll we're, we're like I said, we're going to talk a little bit more about about that uh, in our Ask the Politics guys. But I think that's a fascinating question. Now, if we go even further down ballot. The Republican Party increased its already stronghold on governor's mansions, state legislatures, pre-election 
Republicans had 31 governors, controlled both chambers, I believe in 31 state legislatures. In 2017, it's going to be 35 Republican governors and Republican control of 33 state legislatures. And taking all of this into account from the presidency on down, the Democratic Party in 2017 will have less overall political power than it's had since 1928. And so any way you look at it, the Democrats took a big beating uh, on Tuesday. How come, Jay? Well, you know, one, let's again say that uh, we didn't necessarily see it coming. Um, on, on the governor's races, so often that's that's a state-by-state question. Uh, I don't know. I, I think the, the turnout that Trump brought out helped Republicans – uh, I think there was even among a lot of these places that voted for Clinton, which uh, amounted to her receiving the the winning the popular vote. There were a lot of Republicans who still split the ticket, mm-hmm. uh, who, who voted for a say a Republican governor, but they would vote for Hillary Clinton. Uh, so the the combination of that was was a a very much pro Republican thing. And and you didn't also mention for Democrats, it it almost gets worse. Uh, in two years from now. Now, yep. two years from now, there's there's, uh, uh, you know, the, the typically the party that has the presidency usually loses seats. But the the map, which this year was very much uh, favored Democrats in terms of what Senate seats were up, uh, will favor Republicans uh, next right. time. So in other words, that the, the Democrats have to defend a lot more seats in 2018. The Republicans exactly. had to defend a lot yeah. more seats this time around. So now what we might expect based on past history then is that the Democrats may make some gains in the House. And a lot, of course, depends on what the first year or so, a year and a half of a, of the Trump presidency is going to look like. But I think it's reasonable to expect some Democrat gains in the House and maybe a few Democrat gains in the Senate, but it's going to be tough because they're kind of fighting upstream because of the fact they're going to have to defend more seats. So yeah, that's a really good point. Um, Now, one piece of positive news, at least as far as I'm concerned as a a liberal, is that of the nine marijuana-related measures on state ballots, eight were approved by voters, including recreational legalization in California, the largest state. Now, and right now, or at least after Uh, In 2017, marijuana is legal in 28 states, eight of which have full kind of no doctor's note required legalization. And if you look at the map, you'll see that the only region that's really lagging behind is, not surprisingly, I would argue, the South, where only Arkansas and Florida have approved marijuana for medical use. uh, But and both of those were in this most recent election. So how do you feel about this, Jay? Well, I Wow, I, I wasn't really thinking about that, but I suppose if if uh, that will make all the liberals feel better, I was just thinking, uh, Daisy, yeah. <laughs> more power to them. Um, you know, I, I think we're, you know, we're 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 having a sort of a, in some ways, a libertarian moment, and I think I think um, uh, the pot stuff sort of reflects that. I, you know, I've had some people who have argued that uh, the Gary Johnson candidacy, rather than hurting Trump, actually hurt Clinton. Because a lot of your uh, pot smoking millennials, I'm not trying to make a generalization, um, you know, went went for uh, Gary Johnson of uh, well, at least uh, at least he'll legalize it, uh, sort of thing. I mean, I know um, where Aleppo is, but yeah, um, and, yeah. And, and some places also consider, uh, for example, California. Uh, it had a medical marijuana uh, uh, use before, 
but it was in practice yeah. virtually uh, a, a, a recreational use. So in some cases, it was just sort of, uh, you know, making an honest, uh, you, know, <laughs> right. you know, sort of honesty prevailing and say, look, let's call it what it is. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, I think uh, often people don't uh, don't see that. Now, what will be interesting to see, because we've, you know, in drug policy, and, and this is sort of, I wasn't expecting the conversation to go this way, but but you, we have sort of addiction crises going on throughout the country. Uh, will marijuana still be as, as popular uh, yeah. as, as these drug addiction issues continue? Or, or do people make a separation between pot and, uh, you know, heroin. the painkillers yeah, and, and yeah, uh, uh, leading on to, to heroin addiction that's, that's been a big problem, uh, especially in rural areas? I, I think, yeah, I think some people do. I think another interesting thing is going to be to see how – the, a Trump uh, Justice Department, a Trump administration deals with this because, of course, there's there's no legalization at the federal level, and the federal government could always crack down on the states. The Obama right. administration has basically said we're not going to bother with that; let the states do what they want. But a yeah. Trump administration, which has been the response from from the Obama administration, and quite honestly from the Bush administration yeah. too, there really wasn't any any push to uh, to enforce the federal laws uh, above, over and against the the state ones. And, and my guess is that the uh, Trump administration is not going to be particularly focused on that sort of thing, uh, not as much as, say, some of the other potential Republicans who, you know, who could have won a Ted Cruz or something like that. But we'll, we'll, yeah. we'll have to see. So, OK, finally, let's talk about the future of the parties. Start, and if you don't mind, I'll start with my Democrats who are kind of licking our wounds right now. Um, I mean, given the shellacking we took. At all levels we just talked about, a lot of folks in the party and liberal media outlets are freaking out. And, and of course, the media is egging this on because that's what the media does. It encourages us to freak out and overreact. But I'm not freaking out, Jay. Uh, that's good. Well, that's you know, good. I'd argue that at the presidential level, at least, things aren't all that bad. Demographics are still in the Democratic Party's favor. And Hillary Clinton, as I argued earlier in this episode, was a uniquely ill-suited candidate for this particular point in time. Um, and the fact that more people overall vote for Democrats than Republicans at pretty much all levels if you aggregate, I think that's telling. And I also think that though the clustering of Democrats in big cities, clearly a problem that's not going away. But I feel that a move to kind of a big move, at least to Bernie Sanders style populism a lot of folks on the left are calling for that. I think that would be a mistake. Um, certainly the party leadership could stand to get younger. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, septuagenarians there. But now that the Clintons are out of the picture, I really think things are improved, will, will improve. And the big danger, I think, is overcorrecting. People just need to stop, take a breath. Um, and, you know, I think, well, there's a big caveat there. I think things will improve if the party starts getting serious about state and local races. And they here they've been totally outspent, outorganized, and outstrategized by the Republicans. The good news, at least as far as I'm concerned, is that Democrats have a plan to fix this. Uh, former Attorney General Eric Holder and actually President Obama have, himself have said that they're going to be working on a major uh, initiative, a major effort to direct the party's resources downstream to these state and local level races. And their plan is to win back enough seats in state legislatures to kind of blunt the Republican advantage prior to the 2020 elections. And Jay, I know you know why 2020 is important. Let me explain to listeners. 
It's important because after that, uh, that's the census year, and after that, legislative redistricting is going to happen. And if we go back in time, back to the glory days for the Democratic Party, not that long ago, though it feels like a long time ago, of 2008, Republicans got destroyed in 2008. So what did they do? They poured all sorts of money and attention into state races, and that worked out great for them. There were huge losses over the entire Obama presidency for Democrats at the state level. And so now, after their own catastrophic defeat, the Democrats are going to try to do the same thing and catch up. And it's not a moment too soon, I think. So my kind of bottom line here is that I think the Democrats are clearly in for a rough few years. But That's no different than what the Republicans were in for, right, with the passage of Obamacare and Dodd-Frank. And you could argue it was actually worse for Republicans back then because Democrats had a a filibuster-proof majority in the Senate, which Republicans don't have. And so – Well, and uh, and Democrats also in those circumstances tend to hang together better than Republicans do. At least – And and certainly I think would tend to hang hang together better than uh, Republicans with a president who a lot of them – didn't support or supported yeah. only lukewarmish. Yeah, yeah so. and that's a great point. And so I really, really hope that cooler heads will prevail and that, that the party doesn't essentially try to fix something that's not really broken and try to take too much away from this election. You know, it was uh, that that that's my kind of final point is that overcorrecting would be a huge, huge mistake. But again, it seems like we're at a point in time where the voices calling for massive change uh, are, are the voices that oftentimes get the most press. And this is, I guess, my Burkean conservative coming out saying that, you know, make sure it's really and truly broken before you try to fix it, because in your attempts to fix it, you could just break things even more. So that's my final word on the Democrats. Jay, what about your Republicans? Uh, you know, I was wondering, does a President Trump mean that traditional Republicanism, at least as you and I have come to know it, is dead? And, and, and how do you think his presidency is going to change what it means to be a Republican and, and where, where the GOP goes from here? Well, that's that's what remains to be seen. Um, you know, as listeners know, I was not a uh, big uh, 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 Trump fan uh, throughout this, I'm, right. I'm still not a Trump fan, and and a lot of that was his personality and his 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 person his character, uh, but also a lot of it was that he did not uh, seem to agree with with what had been the traditional Republican Party stance on issues like trade, on issues like immigration, um, uh, on uh, uh, you know freeing up the the economy uh, and and sort of the that that route. Um, what he's done so far, and and again, this is very early, but he's elevated Mike Pence, uh, who is pretty much a traditional as, you know, by the book, conservative Republican to the head of his transition kind, team. Kind of a theocrat, uh, though. I mean, he is, he is uh, reaching out to uh, folks who are the more traditional, if you want to call them Washington insider uh, type folks, uh, but are, are, your standard conservative Republicans. Um, so, I, you know, it, it, it's going to be up to him to see if uh, has he remade the, the Republican Party into sort of a new populist type uh, uh, party uh, or or is, is he going to be achieve some sort of a fusion uh, going forward 
between traditional conservatism and right. and the new the new populism. Yeah. Um, and you know, I don't know any better than than anybody else. Um, my concern on the downside uh, for Republicans would be if Trump continues to be Trump in terms of his character and and what he says, uh, does he uh, unfairly paint the rest of the Republican Party with that that brush um, and uh, of being anti-immigrants and and so forth um, uh, and anti uh, uh, minority uh, yeah. although, although again the the evidence for that is it's here and there and, and we can talk about that at a different time but that would be my my concern is that going forward the republican party needs to make inroads in minority communities uh does trump stop him stop them from doing right. that yeah um i, I would so. think probably the worst case scenario for republicans would be that trump is every bit of disaster that the republican uh, party elite thought he would be and yeah. uh, drives even more people more strongly to the Democrats. And we see a series of wave elections in 2018 and 2020, putting putting Democrats in a in a much more powerful position than they would have been had a more traditional Republican like a like a Ted Cruz or a John Kasich or someone like that been the been the nominee in, in this year. And something else that's going to, to change, I, I, I don't want to misquote our british friends can tell me but it was i want to say it was as disraeli uh the british prime minister uh, asked what he feared most about in politics uh and he said events uh, my good man events um and, and that's that's something that's going to remain to see there's going to be stuff that will happen sure uh during a trump presidency and and how he handles it is going to be telling on on these questions, and that's something we just we just don't know yeah. about yet. Yeah, and we will we we do have some ideas, and we're going to speculate at length on that based on what we know now and what Donald Trump has said in our Ask the Politics Guys episode, which comes out, of course, as, as most of you probably know, every Wednesday. Okay, um, we've been running a little long, but of course, we've had a lot to talk about. Before we go, I just want to read at least one, get a little bit of listener mail in. Uh, and uh, okay. from Andrew from Holland, Michigan. Andrew wrote us a, a great email, uh, a fairly lengthy thing, and it was really wonderful. I'll just read parts of it. Uh, he writes, I grew up in a very conservative right-wing home and was homeschooled by my parents, so I picked up a lot of their beliefs. I ended up having an experience similar to Mike when I started out extremely right-wing and flipped sides. Your show is making me increasingly more moderate and rational in my views. Through Jay's opinions, I've come to realize that activism is great, but we have to be realistic and realize that these things take time and resources, and we can't just pass a law giving everyone free health care and free college without considering the effect it would have on the nation. Your show has been such a blessing. I like podcasts like NPR, but the problem is, in my opinion, most media is slanted to the left, and there's no conservative voice, so I can't be objective. This show is great for teens and young adults like myself because it's simple, clear, rational, and presents both sides so we can make up our own minds. I recommend it to all my friends because it's an unbiased 50-50 split. I'm finding that now I wait for you guys to comment on a political event before I decide what I think about it. You don't tell us what to believe. You give us the information and your opinions and then let us decide for ourselves. Thanks for all you guys do. Looking forward to next week's episode. Oh, thank you, Andrew. That that means a lot. Yeah. Um, it, it really it really does. And I, you know, I just want to say, you know, in this time when people are, uh, many of them upset, um, 
I think the Chris Chris Rock once uh, had this this to say after the OJ verdict of uh, some people too happy, some people too sad, uh, and maybe that's sort of where we are sure. right now. But you know, I, I think what what Mike and I have always tried to do on on the show and the idea with this is is not to one one or the other of us win an argument, uh, but to have a conversation. And and uh, I'm happy that that uh, we're we're I think succeeding at least. Sometimes in that. So thank you. Yeah, well said, Jay. All right. Well, that's it for this week's episode. Thanks, everyone, for listening. If you have any thoughts, comments, criticisms, or questions for Ask the Politics Guys, we would love to hear from you. Uh, That email, remember, we have a new email now. It's mail at politicsguys.com. You can also leave a voice message for us by calling our listener line at 408-840-3518, and that number's on our website as well, politicsguys.com. And we've been posting a lot of stuff on the Facebook page. Of course, in the aftermath of the election, it's been getting a lot of uh, responses, and that's great. And we'll keep on doing that. That's facebook.com slash politicsguys page, and we're also on Twitter at politicsguys. We'd really appreciate it if you could subscribe to the show and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever podcast service you use. And, of course, sharing and retweeting our new show posts and tweets also helps us out a lot. Finally, if you'd like to support the show financially, you can do that through those PayPal and Patreon links on our website, politicsguys.com. The Politics Guys will be back next Sunday. We hope you'll join us.